You're listening to the Boss Business Surgery Series, Episode 121. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Courtney Barrows McEwen. She has a very special story. We all have extremely stressful jobs, and we adapt in different ways. Some even turn to addiction. She shares her story of addiction and recovery and the challenges she's had afterwards. It's an incredibly inspiring story with a very surprising ending. I actually met her as part of the 90-day notice program with Amanda Hill. We created the program for stories just like this. People struggling with jobs, with layoffs. Our next program starts Tuesday. Head to 90daynotice.com for more. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I have a very special guest today. This is Dr. Courtney Barrows McEwen. We have some really remarkably important topics to cover today. And this is how do we adapt to our very challenging job? There is a reason why not everyone wants to become a surgeon. There is a reason why it takes a lot of time and effort to get to become a surgeon. We have to overcome a lot of our own internal and external barriers to achieve something so remarkable. So first is realizing how remarkable you are. You're welcome. But also there's challenges along the way. And Dr. McEwen, she had her own particular challenges that I think a lot of you can relate to. It may not be in the exact same way, but certainly you can relate to the difficulty of the job and adapting to your own internal struggles and how you manage it. Because all of us have some element of addiction. It could be to achievement. It could be to sugar. It could be to alcohol. It could be to medications. It could be anything that creates something in you to help you feel a little better when you have a situation that's challenging. And also along those lines too, the financial landscape of hospitals is challenging. Hospitals practices, we're all dealing with some challenges post-pandemic of decreasing reimbursements, increasing expenses, and some of you are finding yourself laid off. And so she's also going to share with us her experience of what happened in her first job outside of residency. So these are very important topics for us to discover. So first, Dr. Courtney Barrows-McEwen, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right. Well, thank you for having me on, Amy. I'm honored to be asked to be on here. So I was raised in a suburb of Boston, went to Boston College. I had been a student athlete most of my life and even did rowing for a little while at BC. Then spent a couple of years doing research in a lab in Boston, then medical school. I went to New York Medical College, was a great experience. I did very well in med school and my third year of rotations came around. I, I know a lot of people have described it this way, but surgery definitely picked me. I was the only thing out of all the rotations in med school. I had done very well in all of them, but surgery was the only one I really just lit me up and made me want to wake up at five in the morning or four in the morning <laughs> to go into work. And I had a mentor in med school who had said to me, because at, at the end of third year, I said, I wanted to apply to surgery for residency. And he said, just think about everything else that you just did. And if there's even something that you could possibly maybe see yourself as happy doing other than surgery, then go do that thing first. 
or go do that. Oh, Don't do surgery. Somebody has heard that too, right? Like, try to pick anything, any, literally anything else. And if you can't, right. then fine, go to surgery. And I was in a, so my medical school was great. And the, the hospital we were associated with was great for the students, but it actually was known as being a, fa- a fairly malignant residency program. So the fact that I actually loved surgery, despite those things, I think said a lot. So there was only maybe five or six of us out of a class of 250 who went into general surgery. And I did the exercise he assigned me. And I literally couldn't think of, I don't know, medicine, too much rounding, too much talking. There's all of the the things I ruled out. And it's funny because in some ways I feel like I still didn't have a great understanding of myself or my motivations. You're just on this treadmill now and you just keep going. In some ways, I still consider myself very lucky. Like I, I still found the right field for me. And I truly believe that. I actually had a very good experience in my residency program. I matched at Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston, which is one of the Harvard teaching hospitals. And I was there for the Van Wilder program for eight years. They're academics, so they have you do two years of research. And I ended up doing three years after my PGY3 clinical year. So I graduated in 2020 and then matched into a fellowship in the Midwest. During my research time, I had some mental health struggles and also developed some addiction issues, which I'm sure we'll get into more detail about in a moment. But at that point, I had been in a monitoring contract with a physician health program in Massachusetts. And when I moved to the Midwest and was being monitored by the state there, Things were initially going okay, but I had spent eight years at this residency program. That's eight years of working hard and earning respect from people, and you feel like a rock star leaving residency. I definitely got a lot of external validation, I'll just say that. And I think it was earned, but then you get plopped into this place where no one knows. You're having to fight with some of the residents for cases, which was not something I was anticipating. And... It's hard to think about it now because I didn't have the same mindset that I do now, but I I wasn't getting the same external validation, that's for sure. I guess I used to think they hated me and they didn't think I was any good. And I think some of the stories I worked to myself were that I was getting mistreated and stuff, but I don't really think now that's necessarily true. But at that time, it felt like it. And it was to the point where I would say maybe four months into it or so, I was just having this horrible sense of impending doom at night, like to go into work the next day. What am I going to screw up now? Feeling like I'm a horrible surgeon and not wanting to go in the next day, which was actually very disturbing to me because I really truly love being a surgeon. And some of my former residency colleagues used to describe me as like somebody who'd go skipping to the OR because they're so excited about a case. And I would stay late to people were talking about a a tough case in the resident lounge and going through imaging. And I'd want to stay and help figure out what to do. So that was disturbing that there, there's now this opposite end of the spectrum. And at some point during that period, I was also not working a good recovery program and eventually had a relapse where I was drinking wine at home to cope with some of those feelings, um, which was not an excuse. But I, if, I think if I had gone in there with a good uh, program under me, which is my responsibility, you could probably handle pretty much anything. And I've, I think I've proven that later on in my, my uh, journey that you can handle tough things. And I just wasn't in a place where I could handle it at that time. Eventually that got found out. And so I had a positive urine test because they will test your urine for metabolites of alcohol that are there for three or four, three to five days, I believe after drinking. And then I had to go on a medical leave. I found out because of the state I was in happened to be very punitive that I was going to have a license suspension, even though I wasn't necessarily 
drinking at work and there was no allegations of that either. And at that point, it just felt like everything was just crashing down around me. I found out about 10 days after I was on leave that I was terminated from my fellowship. In retrospect, it makes sense. I was only there for a year. And if I was going to have my license suspended for a few months, that was, I was only, I think at that point I was eight months into it. There wasn't going to be an opportunity to necessarily come back, but I took it very personal at the time, obviously, especially because there was really no contact um, between myself and the program. It was all like through GME sending an email basically on a Friday afternoon and that was my low night for sure. Yeah. We'll stop there too, because I think there, that is a really perfect place to look at this overview. I think you provided a great overview that a lot of us can look at and completely understand. And I'm sure now looking in retrospect, it's really obvious how everything unfolded. And we often forget what it's like when we're in the environment of high achieving and everyone around us is a high achiever and we're doing exactly what other people are doing. They're feeding off of us. We're feeding off of them. And what's happening is that we're creating this like best version of ourselves because we're getting all this validation, both internal and external, but there's certainly a lot of external. Now, leaving the environment can be very jarring. And this has been true for people in the military. One of the earlier episodes, Dr. Kenneth Cho shared about when he got out of the military, being the rank of a colonel, he went to a place where they don't have that designation. So you become like another guy and you'd forget what it's like to have that status that's now taken away from you. So that in itself, I think is a very translatable message of when you go from one job where you're appreciated to another job where they don't see it yet, then um, your approach has to change. And if it doesn't, it could be very jarring because all that the validation that you've been taking for granted is now gone. I know that your problem started before within residency itself. So can you start pinpointing where you started struggling a bit saying that I need to find something else to cope because something is not going right? Yeah. When I look back now, or when I looked back, even when I first got into recovery for real a few years ago, it was pretty obvious that I never really had a normal relationship with substances, particularly alcohol. I actually was pretty straight edge in high school and never drank, sort of a goody two-shoes. And then when I went to college, it was very prevalent. BC was, I wouldn't say it's a party school, but people have fun there. I did it to fit in. And I just remember, I never really had a good, very good off switch ever. I just was always able to keep it compartmentalized. And obviously I've never really was an everyday drinker. I actually had a pretty good time in med school as well, even though I did very well when we worked hard, but we played hard. I think things started manifesting when I was in my research time in residency though, because I had actually done very well my first few years clinically, had no issues at all. And then when I went into the lab, it was almost like that jarring experience you were just talking about where it can be a little bit isolating because depending on which lab you're in and you're not around all of your co-residents anymore. And I was working for a PI who was a surgeon at the time at that hospital. He had me working in a translational research lab that was just getting started. And that whole group had moved from Toronto. I was there to help them get started doing some tumor models and things like that. But I got sucked into a lot of the administrative annoyances of starting a lab and getting patient consents and all that stuff while I was also trying to do clinical research so that I could at least get some publications because anybody um, who does bench research knows it's not a guarantee that you will even publish one paper. And even that is you know amazing to do. Um, and I just didn't want that. Uh, I wanted some sort of guarantee. So I was doing a lot of different projects that were just completely unrelated to each other and definitely felt um, overextended 
I was also the administrative resident during research time. So I was doing the scheduling and all that stuff. And I think I, it was just too much on my plate, but I never wanted to admit that it was too much. And oh, so yeah. then I started taking a substance, which is prescribed for ADHD, thinking that would help me focus. And that quickly became very counterproductive because although I knew this, I didn't realize probably to that extent, there is a fairly strong family history on both sides of my family, just not in my immediate family of addiction and that it got out of control pretty quickly. Stop you there because I could completely relate to this. We had a research year as well, and I received the honor of our program director's lab being chosen for that lab. And it was not a very good choice <laughs> because I was doing a lot of war injured research at the time, and I really wanted to spend time with that, but I wanted to support my program director. So I ended up going to this lab where things didn't move very fast, and we're used to moving fast and learning everything um, right then and getting the gratification from our patients and cases. And the change of pace alone can be jarring. But if you find yourself in a lab where it doesn't really quite resonate with your interest, it could be challenging. And I could tell you they were unimpressed with me because I came and I was like, wanted to do stuff and also really didn't. And, and it was very obvious now that was going to be a challenging environment. And I just wasn't prepared for the difference in how I felt about myself and the achievement and the other people around when our interests really just didn't align. So you can make it as neutral as that is just not recognizing the significance of changing the environment and nothing like a change in environment to reveal your inner struggles that you've been able to cope by overworking as we do. So right. there's only so many hours in a day and I really try to yeah. stretch that as much as possible. Um, so I think a lot of people can understand your desire um, for, to feel something different. I think we're just not taught how to feel something and feel distress. And when we're surrounded by different people, then they seem to be the problem. But a lot of times it's just recognizing the different environment that we're in and that we're fish out of water. And that way it can set us up for failure. So tell us a little bit about how your addiction developed in this time. And looking back now, what were some of the things that you noticed? I definitely, I think I've always had a generalized anxiety disorder. I wasn't officially diagnosed with it until actually the addiction piece really came to a head in 2017. However, I never had panic attacks before. I was starting to get those. Um, I was taking the substance at very, when I look back now, it's just, oh my God, you're a doctor. Like, how could you possibly have been doing that? It's insane, but it really is like I, how I can tell that it's a disease. Like it just took over. Everything was about that. I was late to meetings. I wasn't even able to put in proper presentations together. My mind was all over the place, but I thought I was doing all of this work and I would get transfixed on one task and just be focused on that for a few hours. And it was really not, it'd be like looking at a bunch of papers that I didn't actually even end up using for my argument in a presentation. But I think when I first realized, oh gosh, this is really getting out of control was, it wasn't even my first panic attack, but I was um, supposed to present it, or I did present at a national meeting. This was in May of 2017. And I had a huge panic attack the night, the morning of the presentation. I had barely slept the night before. And at this point, alcohol was becoming a problem too, because shocker, when you take a stimulant, especially if you take it later in the day, you can't sleep. And so then I didn't have any sleep medication. I would just drink wine to try and fall asleep, which was becoming unhealthy in and of itself. So I think that my inability to actually even put together a proper presentation for this meeting, and it was just a total mess. And I just remember thinking this PI who was meeting with me to go over it beforehand, 
it was like, you could tell he was just, I don't even know what to do with this person. What is wrong with them? And to his defense, I was trying to cover it all up. And like, I, I just, I don't think any of us are trying to recognize this in people either. And that is something I think that we could work on because I certainly was too terrified to admit to anybody. And so they just thought I was having a quote unquote mental breakdown or, or whatever. But that panic attack where I basically couldn't even get dressed the morning of the presentation. And I had to have one of my friends who was actually also in the same lab and was with me at the hotel, help me put my jacket on. That was how bad it was. And then a, a couple of months later, I eventually actually had a psychotic episode, which a lot of my paranoid delusions in that were surrounding this PI in the lab. And you create yourself as the hero of the story, even though it's weird because I remember everything that I did and said, but at the time I had zero control over my brain. It was just unbelievable and eventually had to get hospitalized for it. And it was because I had taken so much of this medication that it, that's actually a known adverse, I don't know if call it an adverse event, but it's a known manifestation of an overdose of that drug is psychosis. Now, looking back in time, I know for those listening who may be dealing with someone that you're suspicious or having panic attacks, what would you have needed in that moment? What do you think could have potentially helped you had someone recognized it? How could they have detected that you were in trouble and what would have helped you, do you think? So I think that there was a lot of behavioral changes in myself that were noticeable. And again, to this PI's defense, he actually did talk to some higher-ups in the program to address his concerns, but he also was known as a difficult individual in general. And I played that up too, because I was trying to protect myself in my disease state at that point. And honestly, I don't know that anybody could have really done anything different because he actually did report the way I was acting and I had meetings with people and the kind of end result was that maybe if we work on getting you fewer projects that are unrelated to each other, then this could help. And that was like a month before I had the psychotic episodes. But I would say if you see somebody who's generally a very high achieving individual, which most of us are in surgery, but I had at that point developed enough of a reputation that I was a very strong resident in a very strong program. And they're starting to do things that are not consistent with their what you know of them. I think it's hard to something sometimes say something to them because I think, I don't know if I would have been very receptive to it at the time, but that's where physician health programs can come into place. And I would say, depending on the state you're in, you have to tread a little carefully because they, for me, I definitely needed it, but there are some definite downsides to them. And some, I know people, some people have had negative experiences, so I don't want to discount those either. But those are a good place to start because they are confidential and they, even in cases where someone was impaired, depending on the state you're in, but in, at least in our state, you are protected from having any sort of disciplinary action on you if you're being referred to them by someone, as long as you're not putting patients at harm and stuff like that. My program director is actually very well versed in that. So once this actually all happened, I had met with her maybe about a month after I got out of the hospital. And it was funny because I look back now and I, I thought I was better, but I was actually probably still a little bit like my brain wasn't totally back to normal yet. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to meet with her and I don't really know what's going to come of this meeting, but I want to get back into moonlighting because that's where you make a lot of money to, to supplement your research salary. And I think I had said to her at some point, when can I get back into the moonlighting pool? And she's like, I would like you to get evaluated by these people just to make sure you're okay. She was aware of everything that happened because the way this whole psychotic episode manifested. I call a couple of attendings I worked with because I thought they were like, quote unquote, in on this whole weird thing I had hatched in my brain. And then one of my close friends from residency was actually with my husband to take me to the hospital. 
And I thought we were taking her to the hospital because I was so, like, my brain was so unhinged. So she knew everything that had happened. And actually, I, I found out later, she was actually more concerned. She wasn't even suspecting I was using anything, I don't think. At least um, one of my therapists had said, oh, she was actually worried. This is around the age I was maybe around 32 or 33 at the time. And that's the prime age for having a first presentation of a schizophrenia or something, which would be, I think, devastating as a surgeon to be have that diagnosis. And she wanted to make sure that wasn't the case. And eventually it came out, obviously, that this was all due to the amphetamine. And I've never had another panic attack or another psychotic episode ever since that time. Yes, um, I can only imagine what that was like in that moment of feeling out of control and thinking that your reality is different than it is. Let's take it from the perspective of your program director, because I know that she did some really wonderful things that I think that people really should be aware of for all those program directors out there of recognizing something and how to navigate this. So it sounds like her very first concern was she's strong. She's not acting the way she's supposed to be. And now there may be something that we really actually need to do to help her. And it's so hard when someone looks exactly like the person you've known for years that's built all of this trust. And all of a sudden, this person who looks like that person now is not acting like that person. Something is clearly wrong. So tell us what your program director offered you. Yeah. In that same meeting where I was like, oh, I won't get back into moonlighting, right? Like, oh God, I must have sounded like crazy. But the first thing we had actually talked about was the fact that she assumed that this wasn't a healthy work environment for me in this lab. And I'm sure that the PI, I'm sure was a mutual feeling. I wasn't exactly, you know, doing a very good job there either, but she's like, you do not have to work with this person again. I found out later, like from my husband actually, that she had been talking to him while I was in the hospital initially to make sure I was okay, obviously, and safe. But then also like, I mean, she was talking him through how to get his, get the FMLA paperwork filed, which is family medical leave, um, so that I could be paid while I was away on medical leave. Um, and cause he's, you know, obviously navigating all this and totally overwhelmed. And this was a, this is a big residency program. We have graduate nine residents, a chief residence every year. We have a lot of prelims in the intern and second year. And I just being the administrative resident, I know how off the hook her phone constantly is. So the fact that this person who's also a vice chair of education at the hospital took the time just to help my husband do some paperwork was just, it says a lot, I think about her and obviously the program starts with the leadership. So she, I was very touched by that she did. And then when I actually met with her, she had also made sure she had somehow figured out a way to have the tech people put an away message on my email so that I wasn't getting bothered by people. And she actually physically spoke to a lot of the individuals in the lab that I was working with to say, please don't send her any emails. Like it probably would just trigger me or whatever before she was able to get the email thing set up. And then when I met with her, she had, had said I, she had already gotten approval from our chair to cover my research salary for the year, because when you're on research, you're usually getting paid by the PI, whether it's through their grants or whatever type of funding they have. And once you're not working with them, you don't have a salary. So she had gotten the department to basically just pay my research salary for the year. And then she said, you can work with me for the remainder of the year. This would have been like October of 2017. And I was slated to go back for my PGY four year in June of 2018. So I had about maybe nine months left. And she said, we can certainly get you on some projects and work on some things. She did a lot of clinical research outcomes related as well as uh, surgical education research. She said, but 
honestly, my main concern is just that you take this time for self-care and just get better. And if you can, if you want to publish, I know you want to, <laughs> I office is very motivated by that. You can, I just make that your priority. And that made me realize like, okay, I can trust this person. I wasn't sure at the time. And at that point, she and I were like, weren't super close. We became much closer after that, honestly. And she'd also told me I didn't need to tell her anything if I didn't want to, or I didn't feel comfortable. She's like, I would like you to get evaluated by the physician health program so that they can basically ensure that you're safe to return to residency in June. Do you want to say her name? Does that occur? Sure. I can actually, she, cause she had texted me after Francis May's article came out and she was like, I'm so proud of you. I'm crying. You're so powerful. Mm-hmm. Tara Kent. She's awesome. She's good people. And we're very close. Uh, so basically she had said to me, you do not have to tell me anything if you're not comfortable with it. If you get evaluated by them, you know, you can tell me as little as much as you want. And so initially I was of course too scared. I didn't even tell the PHP people. Initially I was using this drug Obviously, eventually it came out. And then I told her later on. Tell us about the path of this. Now you're in the hospital and you're being evaluated. There is some concern for schizophrenia and they at this time did not suspect any substance abuse. How was the path that got to the point where the problem was identified? And then what happened after that? So the problem was identified a little bit, but I didn't tell anybody for my program. because So what had happened was I actually initially got brought to a hospital, a big hospital in Boston that was not my hospital, by my husband and my residency friend, Allie Linsk, who's also awesome. She's a surgical oncologist out in Pennsylvania. They had actually diagnosed me with a conversion disorder. Now, of course, I didn't admit to any drug use, but I took a urine screen and I looked at my test a few days later. It was like grossly positive. It was whatever, as positive as it can be for that, that substance. <laughs> I think that they knew that at the hospital I went to. And basically a day later, my husband's Courtney, you need to get admitted to the hospital. I don't care what you have to do. Just like, I, I don't know. I started acting really crazy worse than usual. And they admitted me. And so this was at a very small mental health hospital in the North Shore, which is about 30 minutes north of Boston. And I was really, you were in a mental health institution. It was pretty scary, actually. It was not addiction focused whatsoever. It was literally for people who were psychotic or having some sort of a crisis. Yeah, it was a pretty scary place, honestly. And so they were really just getting me out of the psychosis mode. And I was on some pretty heavy duty antipsychotics initially when I got discharged and got tapered off of those completely eventually. So that all happened. And then I think it was basically a month later when I met with the program director where she said, you need to get this evaluation. And so then I called the PHP and set up an appointment with them. So we're probably like two months now from me actually getting discharged from the initial psych hospital. So I wasn't using during that time. And it required me to basically meet with a director at the program, the PHP program. I had to get an independent psychiatric evaluation, which is costly, somewhere between $900 to $1,500 to get done. And then they gave me their recommendations for treatment they gave me a few choices. And I think because I don't really know why, but maybe because I was a couple months out at this point, they actually gave me the option of doing an outpatient program for a month. And then the other two choices were both inpatient programs at out-of-state places, which were incredibly costly. And so naturally I went with the cheapest of the options and one where I didn't have to go somewhere. I remember in your interview with uh, Dr. Francis May Harden um, that you mentioned it was like $50,000 for three months. Yeah, I think in general, they typically are about three months. 
and they're um, most of them are out of pocket, like $50,000. And so that was like terrifying to me. I went to a private med school. I was already 300 grand in debt. So for me to conceptualize that was difficult. And obviously I wanted to go with whatever was the you know most cost-effective but I think that's a huge barrier. And I think it's it still can be a barrier today. There are some funds, I think, that are available for people for financial hardship, but I don't know how easy those are to get. And obviously they can't give them to everybody. But I do think that that could be a huge barrier, especially for younger surgeons or trainees who need to get help. That's something, certainly a call for action, I think, at some point. Yeah. And a lot of people may not be familiar with the physician health program, the PHP program. So what is, did you learn about PHP? I know that it's state-specific. And tell us a little bit more about what you've learned about PHP programs. Yeah, and a lot of the, what I'll say can only really be on my experience in whatever states I've been in so far, which I guess I'll be on my fourth PHP now when I move in Tennessee. But <laughs> Lots of experience now. And honestly, I think a lot of it has to do with their relationship with the medical board. For example, in Massachusetts, the PHP is separate from the board, but they do have obligations to report to the board for certain things, those being child abuse, patient harm, pedophilia, things like that. Or if you're in a contract with them, they are mandated, as was the state I went to for my fellowship, they are mandated to report to the board if you have a positive test. Interestingly, in Tennessee, they do not have to do that, actually. If you basically had a relapse or something, I found this out when meeting with the PHP director, because they do not have a contractual relationship with the board whatsoever. So they're actually allowed to basically decide if they need to report or not. And the way that they do it is essentially, if you have a relapse and you agree to go get treatment, then the board doesn't have to find out about you, um, which is not the case, obviously, in other states and in many other states. So I think it starts with that. And that's different in every state. The PHPs are designed to try and be a little bit of a a buffer between the physician and the board. Previously, the medical board would be responsible for handling any issues related to substance use or mental health or any condition that could be potentially impairing. So it could even be a physical condition that may cause impairment. And that was generally always treated by discipline, which isn't really treating at all. They are essentially a confidential modality now where you can uh, get the proper treatment and at least recommendations for treatment without being concerned about your medical board finding out. So the PHP program, you've gone through them and they've created a treatment plan for you. Take mm -hmm. us through what that treatment plan was and, and how was your reentry back into residency? Yeah, sure. They gave me a few different options and I went with the outpatient program, which was six weeks of a day long program. And once I was finished with that, I had to establish aftercare, which consists of seeing a psychiatrist who has specialty in addiction, as well as a therapist who's also an addiction therapist. They do not, the PHP requires you to have those things, but they only give recommendations. They don't treat. But I was able to, through the treatment program, I get some re referrals. Then I was required in this contract. They end up having you sign a contract once you're done with treatment, usually. In Massachusetts, it's three years unless you are known to the board, in which case it's usually five. But most other states are five-year monitoring agreements, which have certain conditions that are fairly standard. Um, those include seeing a, a therapist usually once a month, a psychiatrist monthly to quarterly, 
going to recovery meetings, so whether that's AA or Smart Recovery or Caduceus, and they initially have them a little bit more frequent in the first six months, and then they make it a little bit more lax. So I think it's usually three times a week for the first six months, and then it was weekly after that for those, which were helpful. I find them very helpful now. I, I go to them regardless of whether I have to or not. But at the time, I, it was more of, I have to do this. And then uh, you have to have a workplace monitor. So somebody who you work with who can attest to basically notice things like the people noticed around me when I was starting to act a little bit unhinged. They're basically just to attest that you're not acting like a hot mess at work. So that was my program director was my monitor at work. And then my monitor when I was in my last job in New Hampshire was my partner. So that's fairly standard across states. And then you have to do some form of testing depending on what your substance of choice is or was. Some people have to do breathalyzers. I've only had to do urine testing. And that's usually actually about once a week. So you find out the day that you have to test and then you got to work. When I was in residency, there was a lab that was in the Longwood medical areas. So there's tons of hospitals there. That's where Dana-Farber and the Brigham and stuff is. So I was able to basically run across the street in between cases sometimes to go do my P-test. Um, but it can be a little bit more challenging if you're in more remote locations. Sometimes if there's not a testing site near you, you have to work it in your schedule. It was initially a three-year program and I had my relapse much earlier than how where it presented, obviously, but it didn't get found out until about two months before I was set to be done with the monitoring. Yeah. What led to your relapse now that you look back in time? Yeah. So I think so looking back in time, I never worked a real recovery program. I did all of the things I was supposed to do for my contract, but I really, it's wild when I think about it now, it's like, how did I not think I had the disease of addiction? I just thought I made a mistake and I got a little out of hand and I, okay, I'm not going to use this drug anymore and everything will be fine. But I never had a sponsor. I didn't work any steps. I went to meetings, but I was just like, just to go. Checking the box. Just checking a box. Exactly. So it's very obvious to me now, and they tell you now, you go to meetings, people will say, we can tell when someone's relapsing months before they actually do it because you stop doing all of those things. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was definitely a relapse waiting to happen when I moved, honestly. And that was even before I was struggling, really. And then when you get plopped into this environment where you're not getting all this support and external validation and all that stuff, it's okay, what tools do I have to cope with this? I don't. Now I do, but I did not back then. The only thing I had was to numb those feelings, which was what I did with the wine. I think and a lot so of people can really find themselves in this uh, situation just in general, where in residency, we're surrounded by people whose main job is there to serve success. Like we are their success. They're invested in us. There's resources. There's your program director who's amazing. And I'm sure you had supportive residents as well. Everyone was there to help you. And when you go to a job, this is not the case. And you may get lucky, but it's really not the case. You're now in a completely different environment where it's typically more business related. Now, your success is just your success alone, except for how you can contribute to the business itself. So they don't have as much investment in you. And it's just not built that way. So I think if we keep it neutral, just say like residency is built for your success and the job is you building up their success. So, and that's how you're successful. A lot of people don't recognize that difference up front. So a lot of people do find themselves in a jarring situation. So you had all the safety net. And then leaving to this expected change in environment.
environment without a safety net. I, I agree. You're just set up for problems. How did that evolve? It was probably maybe three or four months into it when I started using the wine as a coping mechanism. And as I know now, the way the disease of addiction works is initially I would just do it every once in a while. So I would try and do it around right after or so. And I'd be like, okay, I'm good for the week, right? This is how I knew I clearly had this disease. Your mind starts playing these tricks on you and you get riskier and riskier with that behavior. So it got to the point where I literally drank like the night before I was going to have a urine test. And it was pretty obvious I was going to because I think it was like there was only two days left in the week. So it was either going to be one or the other. And I still just did it anyway. And I knew that there, I don't even know if I even thought about it, but clearly there was going to be some sort of consequences about it, but I just didn't think about it like that. So our inner self usually knows when we're going off track and it'll do whatever it is possible (laughs) to get our attention. So yeah. I remember you saying too, that when you were thinking about not drinking ever again, a little bit of that resentment came in. I was like, what if I want to? So how much of that played into that? Yeah. I don't know if I ever really thought about not like when I first started having the addiction issues with the medication back in 2017, it's okay. I have to do this for three years. And I think even like I had said with my sisters at some point, a few years, we'll be able to do this, go out for nice glasses of wine, al fresco, like out in the summer or on a patio somewhere. And it'd be like very glamour. You always glamorize it all in your mind. Mm-hmm. I just like wine. I like the taste of it. I actually also liked the way that it made me feel too, which I had this thing in my mind too. I didn't like being told what to do. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Not a, a novel idea to any of us. It's not what to do. I don't like to do it. That's my problem. It's not my drinking that's the problem. I just don't like being told what to do. So there was that, but eventually it was just a lot of lying to my husband. He was finding bottles hidden in cupboards or random places, and it was causing problems in our marriage. I had been lying to him a long time about the substance use back in 2017 too. So I can't imagine he must've been at his breaking point too, because he could always sort of smell it on me and stuff as well. And then I would just say, oh, I wasn't doing it. So did the dog put the wine bottle in this cupboard? Because who else would have done it? And yeah, when that positive test finally came about, that was like in late February, early March of 2021. And when I found that out, I could still actually feel that feeling like that I had that back then. It's getting punched in the gut. Like you just don't even know what to do. Um, Feeling like I was getting backed into a corner and I can't talk my way out of this. I was so tired. Like, I really did want to just get help. I was like, I can just stop. This this can be over now. But then there was the piece of, okay, my career at the time seemed to me like it was also going to be over. Yeah, that was very tough. I remember doing a case and I had gotten a text message from the people at the PHP that there was this positive test. I was like, okay, that was the last case I ever did in my career. It was a robotic esophagectomy. (laughs) I was at a different hospital than like the main place where my fellowship was. And I was driving over this bridge which was directly over a construction site. And I just took a mental note. I don't know. Okay, maybe that bridge will still be here in a few days if things really go bad. And at the time, all I knew was I needed to be on a leave, but I didn't really want to talk to anybody at that time. I was just like so terrified. I was like, I don't want to say anything. I don't know what to do. Let me try and figure this out. Maybe I can come up with some excuse that why there was a positive test. And then that's when the whole just feeling tired and wanting to just get help set in where I was like, I just can't lie anymore. I'm just tired of it. So I initially got put on a leave and I was still terrified to tell Ian, my husband, even though he clearly knew I was drinking the whole time, but to tell him that I finally got caught. So I would go pretend I'd leave every day and pretend to go to work for a solid week, maybe week to 10 days until I got that email from the GME department where it said the fellowship was terminated. 
At that point, I had already talked to a lawyer who was a healthcare lawyer to figure out what the, the steps were at the medical board. So I already knew that I wasn't going to get out of having a license suspension from it. But somehow that termination email was the final straw for me. And I just remember I got it. It was like five o'clock or something on a Friday. And I was actually at home already, but I, my husband was still working up, upstairs. He's a software engineer, so he works from home. And I was like, I just left the house and went in my car. I was like, I can't do Like, I don't know that like everything's crashing around me. Not only was it obviously I was going to be facing all these consequences, but I was like thinking about all the people, especially my residency who had believed in me and put their necks out for me to get this position. And I'm letting all of them down and I'm letting my family down and everybody. It's just, it's too much for me to handle this. Like I can't find a way back. My career's over. And because that's all I thought I was a surgeon, like my life's over. And I still couldn't like bear the thought of actually, I don't know, doing something to myself. But I was like, if I just had maybe a little wine in me to give me a little liquid courage, maybe I can just go over to that bridge and drive off of it. And during that week before I found out about the termination where I was pretending to go to work, I was Googling a lot about physician suicide. I obviously had a, a particular goal in my brain, but I wasn't going to try and find something helpful. I wanted to find stuff that was, I don't know, like maybe it was going to validate me somehow or whatever. And so, but a lot of it was like, actually just made me want to hurt myself more. That's what's scary about it. And I didn't, of course, call any of the hotlines. I just wanted to maybe come up with ideas or something. I don't know. Why did it want to make you hurt yourself more? So I think Pamela Weibel is a fairly well-known physician who's in the this, I don't know if you call an expert necessarily on physician suicide. And obviously her goals are with good intention. She's trying to stop that from happening, but she has a lot of stuff on her site about the stories around the physicians who have killed themselves. And some of them weren't even as bad as what I was going through. At least it seemed to me like what I read that's out in the public. If they did it, then I probably should too. Because everything uh, I was going through was so much worse. So it just gave me more fuel for it. And it wasn't even on her site, but I was looking up what happens to my husband with my med school loans if I was to die or if I was to commit suicide. I don't know, it's somewhere, and I don't even know if this is true or not, but I had found something that said, oh, they won't inherit it. And I was like, okay, well, that was the last thing in my mind I was worried about because I, I honestly felt like he would be better off without me. And I had put him through so much and he's never going to be able to leave me and he'll get over it though. If I do, he'll find somebody else who's probably better for him than I was. And so that was the last thing. Okay. As long as I don't like financially ruin him, then I'm going to be feel okay about this. And I didn't even think about my family. I'm the oldest of four kids. I have three amazing siblings who are all rock stars in their own minds, but they all love me very much and are very supportive and have been this whole time. And my parents who are, amazing and have always been rooting for me. And I ne never even thought about them. We obviously can't talk to the people who did commit suicide, but you having contemplated it, what was the difference that led you say, this is not the path that I'm going to go on? What was it that spoke to you? Because I think all of us want to know how to speak to that person who's suffering and make sure they don't go down that path. Uh, so what was the difference in you that kept you from going down that path? Yeah, it's, it's funny because so my mom read the article from uh, Dr. Harden a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. and she said, I, I feel horrible that you didn't think that we, like, I, I just feel horrible that I couldn't have helped you. Honestly, I don't know that there's anything anyone can say to somebody who's in this position other than if they're, if the one thing I wish I had was somebody who... I could clearly tangibly say, okay, this doctor who went through this situation, people always give you generalizations. Oh, 
plenty of doctors have gone through this and they've gotten better and give me their names. I want to see their CVs and what they did afterwards, blah, blah, blah. I just wish there was somebody who was maybe like a little bit ahead of me that, that had that same similar experience and I can see got through it. Like maybe it wasn't easy, but they did it. But short of that, so like for me, and I, and again, this probably speaks to how intent I was on doing anything. I was in so much pain at the time. I just didn't, I just wanted to not be in pain anymore. And I'm thinking about now, it's funny, the way you glamorize, oh, I'm never gonna be able to drink some nice chilled white wine on a patio. No, my last drink was a solo cup in my car parked in a park about a quarter mile from my house. It was not glamorous. But I called my psychiatrist, who was the only person, this is the same psychiatrist I have, I had in Massachusetts, who's a wonderful man. And he was the only person other than my attorney, who I had been talking to this whole time, who knew I was on leave and was up to date, like where I hadn't told my husband or really anybody else yet. So I just called him and I forget even, I don't even really remember everything I said. But I do remember me saying something about how I was like, oh, I list all these ways that people theoretically could die by suicide. And none of them sounded particularly appealing to me. I didn't want my husband to find me. I didn't have access to, fortunately, either a firearm or opiates or anything like that. But I could see myself just getting a little bit of liquid courage enough to drive off this bridge that I knew I wasn't going to hurt anybody because it was an abandoned construction site below but it was high enough where I was very unlikely I would survive the impact. I told him that. And then he said, what about Ian? And I was like, he is honestly so much better off without me. And I also know that he's not going to have to get my loans, have to pay those back. And he finally said, I think you've thought about this a little bit too much for my comfort level. Can I call Ian? And I don't know why I said yes. I think because I probably just really didn't want to do it. I hope everybody knows there's probably somebody in their life who despite how much you may have been disappointing them, they love you. Hopefully you have more than one, but I'm sure everyone has at least one person and just call them because they're, that's what my psychiatrist did for me is he called my husband, Ian came and I kept, I remember I was like sobbing and I was like, I ruined our lives. I made you move all the way out here for nothing. And now I'm fired and my career is over. I don't know what to do. And he just kept saying, every time I said one of those things, he'd be like, I love you. He grabbed me by the face, kept looking at me in the eye, I love you every time. <laughs> and I finally just stopped. I was like, okay. And then he got me in the car and got me showered up at home and took me home. And I don't know, the rest, then I went into treatment a couple of days later. I don't even remember the, just like the next couple of days after that. It was just like crisis averted. <laughs> I don't know. He put up with way more of those for better or worse vows only five years into our marriage than most people probably have to. So I can't appreciate him enough. He's just awesome. And I would hope I could do the same thing if I was put in that situation, but I don't know back then if I would have been able to. He just deserves so much of that credit. We had a lot of trust, obviously, to build back after that, but he put all that aside for the time being because, and he did, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, how does this person actually love me? I'm literally just destroying their life or it felt, it felt to me like I was, but he loved me anyway. And he does. You want to mention who your psychiatrist is? Yes. Dr. Luis Sanchez. Uh, he's actually used to be the director of the PHP in Massachusetts. He's semi-retirement, but I, I basically have actually kept him because it's actually fairly difficult to find a psychiatrist in New Hampshire. And I am probably going to switch when I go to Tennessee, but it's hard to switch with that type of person because he did a lot of my therapy for me too. And again, I mean, he was on my phone, a friend or whatever you want to call it list when I was literally at my lowest point, obviously created this very trusting relationship where I felt comfortable enough to call him 
in that state. He's fantastic. So now this recovery was a lot different than your first one. Tell us how this went for you. Yeah. So I knew I was going to get disciplined by the board. It didn't actually happen just because of the way the board meets until about two weeks into me actually being in treatment. Now, one of the silver linings of this all happening in in the time and in the state I was in at the time was that I was actually given an option to go to a, a very good treatment center that has a healthcare professional program too, but was actually covered by my insurance. And that was a huge in my mind barrier that was negated. Cobra insurance is not cheap. It's I think around six or $700 a month, depending on where you are. But as long as I paid that, that's a lot cheaper than paying a, it would have been a $30,000 bill for 28 days of treatment. And it was a great place. I was not drinking enough that I even had to detox, but just to be in an environment where like literally you cannot pick up anything. I guess if you wanted to try hard enough, you could, but it was very safe from using anything. And it just gave you clarity and time to just heal and process. And I was in a house with a bunch of other women who were going through similar things as me, maybe not the exact same thing, but we were all struggling with our demons. And I don't remember laughing as much as I did like my whole life <laughs> that I did. We just like our whole stories, like we can just laugh at each other. But it also just gave me a good foundation. I would say that inpatient treatment is certainly important, but it's not going to keep you sober. So regardless of what you do, you have to then really, it's true, it's work. You work a program. So when I left treatment, and they clearly lie this, lay this out with when you get disciplined about what steps you have to take to get your license back. But just to step back a second from that and focus on like the recovery aspect is I did about six weeks as an, in an, a day program outpatient, which at the time was still prime COVID time in the state I was in. So it was all on Zoom, but that was helpful. And immediately, as soon as I got out of uh, treatment, start going to meetings right away. And it's funny, it's like when you look at things from a different perspective, like putting on a new set of glasses, oh, these are actually like really great. Like all these women are so smart. They're got these little pearls of wisdom everywhere. And I had done this a little bit before, but I was always like intellectualizing everything, which you can do because th there's a lot of like really good readings and stuff. But I definitely felt it here at some point, like in treatment, I had some light bulb moment that was like, oh man, yeah, I am an alcoholic. <laughs> Nobody wishes to be one, but it's not like I have to say it like in a derogatory way. That's just part of who I am. I think it was like some nurse had give, done some intake on me actually and had been asking these questions and she's like, wait, you were already getting tested and you knew you'd probably have something bad happen if you drank and then you drank anyway. And I was like, yep. And she's like, why would you do that? And I, I remember it just came out so effortlessly. I was like, cause I'm an alcoholic. Like that's what you do. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, then I was like, oh, I didn't even feel any shame by saying that. I was like, it was almost like, <clears throat> excuse me, I could breathe again. It's really obvious as you tell your story, the difference. When you're in residency and you're in this environment where you're trying to prove yourself and that become, that environment has set you up for getting to this area. And then you go to this immediate rehab, which is basically based on schizophrenia. You don't necessarily identify with the people there. And then you go to these meetings because you're told to, like you have to, comparing this to like, a different treatment where you now identify with the people around you and they can elevate and help you understand yourself on a deeper level. And you go to these meetings because these are the things that, that are helping you see the things that are going on in your life. So it makes 
it's pretty obvious now, like the difference between the two and how one could be more successful than the other. And I don't know, it's just really interesting to hear your story about what could work and why one path didn't work. And who knows if it could have been different. It's just interesting observation of us when we look at how we help someone in this situation, how we can set up our expectations and change the way we approach the situation that may be a little bit more successful. Honestly, the biggest difference, if we're going to just summarize it in one word, would be acceptance. Because I don't think no matter what I had treatment-wise back when it first happened in residency, I even had actually, I met with my program director about a couple months after I got out of treatment after the relapse. And she was like, I wonder if we were like too easy on you guys or was I too support? Because basically, was it too soft of a program or something? And I don't even remember what I said at the time. I think I said something like, first of all, no, it's exactly what I needed at that time. But also maybe more programs should be like that as opposed to the other way around. But also I think I probably didn't convey this enough to her was like, I don't think there's anything anybody could have done then because I wasn't ready. Regardless of how obvious it may seem now or to anybody then on the outside, I, in my mind, did not think I had this disease. I thought it was just a, like I said, mistake, whatever you want to call it. I had addiction stigmatized in my mind. And once you admit to that, it makes everything so much easier. So when I left treatment, so this will be like April now of 2021, I clearly nothing in my external circumstances had changed. I still was a few months away from being able to even apply to get my license back. I was unemployed and I couldn't work obviously as a doctor because I didn't have a license. But somehow I just left there feeling like everything's going to be okay. And that's what the whole gift of perspective and acceptance will provide you where there's nothing on the outside that changed other than just me. <laughs> and then it just became easier. So I get to do these things right now. And I found the more I got engaged with the program, the more I got back from it. And it's funny how you literally like you start to do the right things for the right reasons. And then things start working out. So I got a sponsor couple weeks after I got out of treatment, who's the same sponsor I have today. Her name's Lynn and she's just awesome. She's the anti-me. She's, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> she's very calming and has this very soothing voice and she doesn't talk a million miles a minute. And she just, but she's also very good about just calling me out on my BS if I say something. It's really funny when I left treatment, it's like, I thought like these different things about myself. And then she was like, you were so angry. <laughs> it's an unbelievable. She had said this to me when I was leaving to move to New Hampshire. Like, wow, you've come so far and so long. I, I remember you just were like that. She made this pursed up lips face. Like, I was like, really? So she took me through, there's steps when you're working a step-based recovery program, like AA or NA. And I, I did those. I never did those, Ben, the first time around. Uh, and those were a huge game changer, especially I think that part where I have to list all my resentments. So I thought, oh, this is fun because I get to list all these. Basically, it's like my little shit list, right? <laughs> like all these people or entities, boards and institutions who have wronged me and why I'm angry at them. And then it's, oh, this is great. Oh, like I'm getting really fired up. And I was definitely still like looking back now, clearly still very angry. And while I was definitely at the top of that list, like I was blaming myself for sure. I wasn't trying to skirt that. There's a lot of other people who are people or places or things that were uh, conspiring against me too, at least in my mind. And I then had to just do the step of what was my part in each of these things. And I was like, oh man. This stinks now. <laughs> I was like, I, I realized, 
And, and they take you through this. You need to really do these with another person who has experience in recovery, preferably is a few years sober. Although I, I don't think there's any written rule about it. But so she took me through every single one of them. And then I had this other list of like things I was like really ashamed of that I did too. And they're just there's no judgment. I think that's like the big thing about it is you can go and you can say anything in these meetings short of I'm going to go murder a bunch of people, but people just, they've probably done worse. And you're like around all these people who have had similar struggles. So it removes the shame element from it. And once I recognized my part in these things, this is not like a way to be self-deprecating or to try and say, oh, it's all my fault, but it's just when you look at it from that perspective, because you can't change how other people are going to treat you or the rules of places, you can't eventually maybe, but you can change how you feel about the whole thing. And I can tell you that feeling, being able to look at all of that and say, I clearly play a part in that. And I think the biggest thing that helped me overcome that mental hurdle was her asking me, do you really think that if any of those things, these bad things that happened to you, like maybe it was harsh, right? Like the Especially knowing, like, if actually if I had been in many other states, I may not have been disciplined, right? That was, like, the big thing. It was hard for me to get over for whatever reason. She, do you really think that that hadn't happened because you're really forced to be out now? That you'd, you'd be sober right now and, like, where you are now? And I knew what the answer was to that. It was, like, clearly I wouldn't have stopped. So then resentment released. And it was very freeing. And then that's when I was starting to actually tell my story in a way that was like, okay, here are the facts. This is what happened. This is what I'm doing now. And this is where I am today. And not they were mean to me or they did this to me. And I was in a, such a harsh place. And if I was somewhere else, this wouldn't have happened. Those things may, some of them may be true or varying versions of true. But at the end of the day, I'm now can be the hero of my story rather than the victim of it. And isn't that such a nicer place to be? I don't know. I think it yeah. feels much better. <laughs> it, it is. And it's, it's such a hard transition to get to listing all the the regrets that you have or all the blaming and then asking what your part is in that. And our answers to those questions is what was my part in that will tell you the degree of acceptance that you have. And yeah. I 100% agree. It's the, it's the level of acceptance that you had that's going to be the difference between you being the hero of your story and remaining to be the victim in it because you give up the whole idea of victim and villains and more of this is the path uh, that I took. So now that you had gotten onto the path where the recovery was successful, what happened after that? Because we think, all right, I've got it now, so everything should be fine. And how was everything? Initially, actually, things worked out great. And it was it was a very good manifestation of that quote, like when the student's ready, the teacher appears, right? So I, I was like very well into my recovery now. Um, I had to do certain things to get my license back in that state. Um, and those things were doing the treatment I already did. And then I had to get evaluated by three separate psychiatrists, which was all out of pocket. And they basically have to say, okay, you're fit to return to medicine, which they all did. And then I submit all that stuff to the board. And then I got my license back in that state. And now I never planned to stay in that state. Even before all this happened, my husband and I are both from New England. And we always planned to move back there. And it's funny when around the time I was getting my license back, I started going to this women's AA meeting. It's actually a physician AA meeting. And it's from women all over the country. And I happened to meet this woman who was in the state that I moved to in New Hampshire, who was going to be able to help me get my contract moved over and get my license in New Hampshire and stuff. And basically had confirmed that this was a very physician friendly state. So it's like all of a sudden this person I just meet now, like, how does that happen? Again, why I don't really believe in coincidences anymore. 
And then, so I applied for my license in New Hampshire. They gave me a full license. I had obviously been transparent about everything, but I had already signed an agreement to transfer my monitoring over to New Hampshire's physician health program. And I did that first, which I think was helpful in retrospect, as far as like how the medical board viewed your application. So they basically just, okay, we don't have to worry about her. She's already getting monitored. Why do we need to make this more difficult for her? And then I applied for some jobs. I didn't get a ton of interviews and I can suspect why at that point was out of residency for a couple of years, had done like maybe 60% of a fellowship. And then I was just coming off of a fresh license suspension. But there was one place who had me interview and I had told them my whole story, which I wouldn't recommend people doing like the first time you interview with someone is like, that be the first thing that you let off with. But that's what I did in this case. And it actually worked out well. Like they basically welcomed me with open arms. And obviously that wasn't all I had to offer clearly, <laughs> but I didn't have to feel any shame about it. And so it was a com small community hospital in, in Southern New Hampshire called Frisbee Memorial. And I worked there, I started working there in May of 2022 and things had been going well although we weren't super busy and we were having trouble getting a lot of volume. So it was basically me, um, my partner, who was also full-time, who had just started there a few months before me. And then we also had another surgeon who was half like part-time, took like maybe 10 calls um, a month to help with the call schedule. And um, he was a more senior towards the end of his career. Um, the hospital was owned by a big for-profit corporation, which owns many hospitals all over the country. And they had a very corporate mentality and basically decided that we weren't busy enough to warrant having two and a half surgeons on staff. So we're going to have to let go of the last one we hired, which unfortunately happened to be me. So actually February of 2023, I was laid off and had 90 days of pay, but I was actually laid off and had to stop work immediately. And then they just paid me for the subsequent 90 days. So that was the first, I think, everything had been going great in recovery, right? Oh, all these great things are happening, blah, blah, blah. And, and then all of a sudden, this is, okay, life on life's terms, reality check. That was challenging, obviously. Very, it felt devastating at the time because even though I knew this wasn't going to be a place I, was, I could envision myself at for the duration of my career, it was a great first job. And I thought that I could be there for a little bit longer. And then eventually find something that might be a better fit. But that decision was, you know, made for me. Yeah. And when you think about it, the, so now you are uh, looking for another job and you are now, I think you were board certified at this time or were going to be board certified. I was actually, so I was about a month away from my boards, yeah. my oral boards, and I failed them a month later, <laughs> which is another challenge that was going on in parallel <laughs> with all yeah. of this. And I don't know. I, that was a hard thing to even wrap my head around too, because that was part of what I thought that oral boards tested were things I was particularly good at, like the judgment and the clinical decision-making aspect of things and the communication. Somehow there tended to be, I found out this later when I took out a real, like a hardcore course, some of my personality traits don't necessarily translate very well on Zoom. But at any rate, like I was struggling in my mind, why am I having a hard time with this test? All of my other coaches like pass this. And I was like very solid in my class. And like, why am I having such a hard time with this? It's supposed to test all the things I'm good at. Like here I am then also looking for a job. And so I was board eligible, but I wasn't officially board certified yet until October of this 
2023, I passed, fortunately. So yeah, it was, it was challenging. And when I, I got laid off, my partner, I remember I was like crying in his office and he's because he doesn't have any decision over this either. He basically got told the night before they were going to do it. This is what happening. And he's, you're going to be fine. First of all, you're like that much further removed from that disciplinary thing that happened. You've been working now almost a year. You have this experience, like you're good to go. He's going to have a job in two, two, three months tops. And it was not, that was not the case. I actually was very, I even was surprised. I didn't think what he said was necessarily going to happen, but I didn't think it would be as challenging as it was to find another job. Even one that would like not even find a good job, but like a lot of places I was getting a lot more rejection than I was ready for. Because on paper, you had finished a residency and at least 60% of a fellowship board eligible and eventually board certified, but had not quite had a year's worth of experience. And then also, by the way, this thing a couple of years in the, in the past. So now I know because a lot of times people think, okay, fine, the backup is locums. So how did that work out for you trying to get a locums gig? Yeah, that was one of the first things I thought of too, because I was like, okay, I, again, I'm in a much better position than I was a year ago, right? I have a medical license. I'm got my DEA. I'm like all good to go. Essentially. The only reason I'm not working now is because they had some financial restructuring, had nothing to do with me. So I'll be fine. Let's just do some locums. I had, again, was surprised with how much barriers I was encountering there. I think it's become a lot more competitive now because so many people know about it. And so there's a lot of competition for each position that comes up more so than maybe there was a few years ago. But I remember I called all of the big locums companies, got my, and I was getting phone calls nonstop, which probably in retrospect didn't help with me focusing on studying for my boards, by the way, because I was trying to, of course, I started applying for jobs. Like I got let go on a Friday. I had my wallowed for the weekend. And then like Monday, I was like, I game on, I am like going to prove everybody wrong. And I had started working with this company again. I was very, at this point, fairly well-versed in how to uh, tell my narrative, be transparent about it while not having it be victimine, just letting them know, because there's no point in wasting either of our time if someone's going to just... And there have been places, by the way, that I applied to where I know for a fact that actually purely just my having that little ding on my record actually disqualified me from a position. So that's something to be aware of. But most of the time, you probably don't want to work with those places anyway. Saves a lot of time and heartache. Yeah, exactly. But that stigma is definitely still real and alive. I wouldn't tell them make that say that to discourage people, but it's just that's reality. There are plenty of places though that aren't like that. And of course, we know how this ends. Very interesting turn of events. It is what happened next. And I would say just for the locums thing, just to give people a little information more than what I just said, is that I hit some barriers because I think part of it was general lack of experience mixed with having had some gaps recently and maybe the disciplinary things. So I think there was a lot of things that were there, but basically I had two of the biggest locums companies, very well known, basically say, you need to find your own work for six months and then we, maybe we'll work with you. I'm like, okay, I'm probably not going to work with you after six months that I'm working. I'll work with somebody else. But I just, yeah, I couldn't find a good locums position and same thing. Couldn't find a, a full-time job. I had plenty of interviews but they usually stopped at the in-house recruiter or the, yeah, like their HR person. Occasionally I met with a, a surgeon. Only guess as to what the reasons were that I didn't get a position, so it probably wouldn't be helpful. 
And then I honestly, at this point, okay, what are the things in my situation now that I can actually have some control over? I can't control if a place is going to stigmatize me for my background or they need somebody with five years of experience and I only have point. eight, five, whatever it is, years. <laughs> I can't do anything about that. I can get board certified. I'm sure some places are probably looking at my application like, you graduated two and a half years ago. Why are you not certified yet, even if you're eligible? Let's pass the boards. I make it sound very easy, but <laughs> I did a lot of things that time around too to help change the outcome. So I invested in a course that helped with working on communication and things like that too. And I did a lot more intentional practice with people I met from the course. So like doing a lot more basically like mock oral style stuff, which I thought like, oh, I don't really need to do that because I'm smart and I know all the stuff, but you do. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Everybody does. And then I started applying for jobs once I found out I passed again. I had taken some time off over the summer because not only to study for the boards, but also my grandmother was getting very sick and she got diagnosed with ureteral cancer. And I actually, while that's been challenging, it was somewhat of a gift that I had some flexibility with my schedule because I was able to help my family navigate a lot of that, went to a lot of the appointments with them. Uh, I'm the only physician in our family. And my dad is very well educated, but doesn't have a lot of health care knowledge or background. And he said to me multiple times, I don't even know how I would have been able to do any of this if you hadn't gone to that or gone on this phone call or, or all that. So that was, I was really grateful to be able to be able to show up for my family like that. And I don't think I would have been able to, even just as a person, I don't know if I would have been that like that in the past. But then when it came time to start applying for some jobs again, I was still hitting some barriers, not going to lie. It was a little frustrating. And I didn't really know. I remember saying to my husband at some point, I almost feel like this kid that's walking into a room, like everybody knows that there's something on their face, but no one tells them. That's how I felt. I was like, what's going on? Because I feel like everyone's telling me, I know my what my CV looks like. And I know the good training I got. And I know what my patients on, if you Google me and stuff, like what my patients have said about me, it's all like awesome stuff. Like, why am I having such a hard time? There's supposedly a physician shortage, right? Why is it just, it was really mind boggling. And so then I had actually been fangirling you for a while from afar, <laughs> listening to your podcast for a couple of years, just being like, and I remember at some point I was listening to it like, man, this would be such an awesome person to work with, but I'm never going to go to Columbia, Tennessee. <laughs> and it was funny. And anyway, I, you at some point had said, oh, I'm going to have this free webinar. Cause in my mind, I was like, maybe I should do some coaching. Like I got to change something up. I thought, oh man, but I don't, I'm not making much money. Like I'm making no money now. And then like the savings accounts getting smaller and smaller. I was like, I can't financially wrap my head around spending that type of money on coaching, even though clearly it's probably going to help me get a job, which will then put that money back into said bank account. But then you said, oh, I'm going to have a free webinar and it's going to be called Predictable to Pink Slip. Did she just make this for me? Because I feel like it's like exactly what I'm dealing with right now, like how to bounce back from a layoff. And then I went to it and I was just going to it like, okay, I'm going to try and do something for myself and just think about this as an investment. If I decide to do this course that is called 90 Day Notice about, again, processing layoff and developing your idea of what your dream job should be, which I didn't think I even deserved my dream job because I should just be happy with whatever I get. And then all I did was go to this webinar and asked a question. And I think I set up the question with to give you some background on who I was and where I'm at. 
And you answered it. <laughs> I don't remember exactly what you said, but I do remember the email I had in my inbox the next morning, which was from Dr. Amy Vertries. And it had said, hi, Courtney, I just wanted to talk to you at some point, not just about the course, but I'm thinking about hiring a third partner. And I don't know if you'd be interested, but maybe it'll just be a place for you to land for a little while. And I was just like, <laughs> this is a joke. <laughs> All she knows what is my happened? first last name. She doesn't even have my same, she doesn't even have my resume yet. And she's not really offering, but it's like proposing it a little bit. I was like, this has got to be a, like, is this a scam? Is she have, because there's a bot, somebody got into your email maybe. And that's what I'm thinking in my mind, right? Not because I didn't think I deserved to have a good job though, just more because she doesn't even know me yet. She, she's just going to like me when she does know me, but she's literally offering to help without really knowing me. That's where I was like, my mind was like boggled. And again, why I just say, I do not believe in coincidences anymore. I've been talking to my partner for a long time. And just to, I guess, to fast forward the story, we've had several phone conversations since then. Uh, the week before Christmas, I flew down to Nashville and visited um, Dr. Vertrice's practice. And everybody there is just amazing. Everybody at Murray. I said it, Murray. Yeah, don't get me started. I know, Dennis Gilmore, like it's I said. Mari. Everyone Murray, says Murray. It is Murray, not Maury. Okay, so anyway. But yeah, and then before I got on a plane, I had a nice little Christmas skip, which was a job offer to be in Columbia Surgical Partners. And I am going to be moving to Columbia, Tennessee, as it turns out, in a couple months. Man, yeah, it's just... This is, yeah, again, why I say it sounds like this awesome little story about getting it all... I needed to do was just be a little bit patient, try and do something a little different than I did and help myself out. And then I, I didn't do anything to get other than just be myself and do that stuff. And then I was apparently ready now. And I've obviously stayed in close contact with my sponsor and everything. And she felt so bad for me. I could tell during this whole process, because I'm like trying to at least get glean some lesson out of all of this. Like when I was struggling. It helpless. I felt helpless and I also felt, okay, I could in the past with the discipline, okay, it got me sober and I was two years sober and I dealt with this like devastating career thing. And then I failed my boards and I didn't drink over any or use over any of those things. I am still, now I'm two years, nine months, 22 days sober, but I was able to deal with those things. And I'm like, but I can't understand like, why is it so hard for me to get a job then? Because I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing. I'm still going to meetings. I'm still talking to my sponsor. I'm still very active working my program and it's just not working. And she's, I can't tell you she's because I'm still almost having a hard time with it myself. She's like, I know, I just know I've done this for too long. You're going to understand after the fact why it had to take so long. And now I know because if this had potentially been an op option back in say March or April, when I was starting to first look. I would have thought to myself, I still have a chance of staying in New England or something. And I'm going to stay with that, even if it's not the right job for me, just because it's convenient or, and also close to my family. It's not like um, I'm trying to discount that, but I'm ready now to be open to other geographic locations. And then this amazing opportunity comes like who I also knew would be an awesome person to work with. And now I'm actually ready to move to Columbia, Tennessee. <laughs> Isn't it so, funny? Like, I too do not believe in accidents anymore. And there was just something about the email. And I think you were just asked about the course. And I was like, I got some more things to talk to you about. <laughs> yeah, because I was interesting. I was like, I would wonder what it was from your perspective. Because I think all I had said was, oh, I'm a whatever general surgeon. I've got a, I've got a decent resume, but I'm having a hard time. And I just wanted some 
First of all, to know if like your coaching was obviously everyone's got their little niche and I wanted to make sure probably set it more tactfully that way, but I was going to get my money's worth of whatever, if I was going to sign up for something and then, yeah. And then, so I was just curious, yeah, from your perspective, like how that looked because sense. I don't know the, one of the more compelling episodes that we've had a long time ago was someone who just made a comment on the Facebook post that I did back in the become the boss MD coaching Facebook group. And I asked like a limiting thought in medicine. And he said, I'm not good enough or something like that. I was like, well, you've got a story. And so there's something about the work that I've done over the last few years is that I get a sense that there is something interesting underlying a statement. And so I'm not exactly sure what it was about your email that stuck out to me. It was, it, it wasn't like a hopeless, it was a, it was almost like a cry for help, but it wasn't like a, a sad cry for help. It was just, it was interesting because I definitely felt something when I read it. And it was really about the course. It was about like the 90 day notice. And Amanda and I had already gotten a vibe of the world at large. We initially created the 90 day notice to support people trying to leave a toxic job because goodness knows there's plenty of that too. But we started getting the vibe of people getting laid off and physicians who have gone through all of this training and all of this and who now are left holding the bag of hundreds of thousand dollars of student loan debt and buying a house and moving there. We really started seeing that we needed to reach those people too. And then you had this additional layer. I don't even think it was in your email about the addiction and recovery and things like that, about having another strike against you that like there should be some level of support for people who have challenges. And so I think, you know, you mentioned this along the way of, I think in your story, hearing all of this is the importance of having hope and really being your authentic self. So I think what stands out to me in your story is how you became your authentic self and you accepted who you are. And a lot of us don't, which is why we turn to substances to help. And you really became the person that you were meant to be. And I think that's what comes across. And I think you being your authentic self made it so much more obvious why you would be a good fit in our area. And I knew that there was going to be a barrier to say, come on down to Columbia, Tennessee. I'm not from here either. I knew that was like the biggest barrier for me to overcome. But what we have is the practice that is not like the ones that we've been trained in. And I knew from the army and our rotations that a private or not a private practice necessarily, but in a small town in a community hospital, you have the ability to be more than just a surgeon. You have the ability to be part of a community and support the patients and the system. And there's something about this practice that appealed to me on that rotation and in the military. And I found that here in Columbia, Tennessee, the biggest barrier for me to recruit people was for me accepting that anyone would would want to come to Columbia, Tennessee. (laughs) Although to be fair too, you like... (laughs) <laughs> you're only 45 minutes south of Nashville. So it's actually not even really like, if we're going to talk about like Odunk, USA, Columbia is not that. And again, I, it was funny because I had, obviously I've met with the director of the, the physician health program in Tennessee now, since he is uh, going to be uh, providing a letter of support for my license application. And uh, he's, that's one of the things he said to me at the end is you're coming from, you're like trained in Boston and what's the culture shock going to be like? I was like, I don't have a Southern accent. I guess that maybe is a culture shock. I was like, but otherwise he's like, I'm trying to see what do you like to do for fun? I was like, Let's see. I like to golf. I like to play with my dog. I like to hike and I like to kayak. And I think that you guys have some bodies of water and you have some hiking trails and there's probably some golf courses. I'm guessing I haven't looked it up yet, but I'm guessing they're probably 
And then there's, I don't actually, I've gotten grumpier, I guess you could say in my older age. I don't really do in like city stuff. This sounds perfect. And you have really good barbecue, by the way. Very. So, yeah, I had it right before I left, actually. I met with a friend of mine who's at, at Vanderbilt and left his little trauma, whatever trauma service to grab lunch with me near there. And, and amazing. So I was like, I think I'll be okay. As long as I don't mind my whatever weird accent. Then I found out, obviously, like there's basically no, none of the physicians I think I met at your, either your practice or your institution like, have a Southern accent. They're all from other areas yeah. of the country. I mean, so. It, so essentially what it means is that you may not have the practice that you think you want. We could all have these ideas of where we want to go, but when you your true and authentic self, someone is going to recognize you as a fit for where you may want to be. And so it, it made perfect sense to me. I just realized I needed to make sure it made sense to you because I just had to convince you of that. <laughs> yeah. And my husband will come around. He's, he loves me, obviously. But yeah, I guess that brings up a good point that I probably didn't emphasize enough even earlier on in our conversation about what is the right fit for you. Because I think sometimes, again, we get on this carousel and just keeps going. We don't even really reflect at all on what are our values and what is the right, not only the right specialty for me, but subspecialty or practice environment. And when you're put in these, especially these big academic programs, which by the way, I would change nothing because clearly like I had the perfect setup for me at that time. And like all of those people that I worked with, regardless of me ever being academic again, no regrets. But that being said, it's almost like you're programmed to think there's only one way to do things and that's to go be an academic surgeon. And then I also had this, obviously this part of me that was like, needs to do the hardest possible thing the best possible thing, the most prestigious possible place. Mm -hmm. And then when I had that little, whatever you want to call it, fall from grace, whatever, career earthquake, <laughs> I had a chance to just say what's actually important to me. And I literally never asked that question before. I think I went into medicine because I thought it would be like an impressive thing to do. And I don't know, my parents seemed proud of me. And I got lucky in a lot of ways because I literally, I think it's such a privilege to be a surgeon. And I love, I love it. I would not, still would not do anything else in any other field, even outside of medicine. But here's yeah. an interesting perspective when it comes to success as a surgeon. We, when we think of success as a surgeon, we think of the things that we achieve, but success as a surgeon is looking at that patient in front of us and us saving their life or changing their life for the better and being there and supporting them and things like that. We can be remarkably successful surgeons, saving people's lives, like literally anywhere. And the yeah. practice format for that will suit our personality depending on what that is. So we oftentimes have to make sure that we're exposing people to other environments in the training so they know what's possible. And it's not just the academic achievement ladder. It's not just, I was actually just talking before we started recording about how women especially seem to be embracing a little bit of the innovation and life, life and leadership looking a little bit different because of some of the barriers that we face, we've had to become more inventive. And I think that innovation is really opening up numerous pathways where our paths to success are much greater than we ever gave ourselves credit for. And the same is true for your choice of practices. It's much more broad than you're initially given. So when you find yourself in a practice and it doesn't feel right, it may just be that your thoughts about what where you would be happy is a little bit different. Exactly. And that's I think the amazing thing of this whole journey is that what I now, like I'm, 
finally living again, like in my true authentic self. And I am like so much happier and just more, I think, serene in general than I was back then, even if I had eventually gotten to be like a full professor at some amazing academic place, because it wouldn't have been true to me. And I'm going to be so much... I think that's the the biggest thing is when you find like that place where obviously you've seen my CV and I've done a lot of stuff and accomplished a lot. And most of that was me trying to hammer a square peg into a round hole. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to be somewhere where I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. There's nothing more powerful and I think product productivity stimulating than being somewhere where you belong. Look out. Tennessee, just said we're very excited that you're coming. I and mean, I'm, I'm psyched. Yeah. Like my first, especially I walk into your office for my like interview and you hug me, your whole office hugs me. So one, I think it was Darian, like came barreling into the door from like yes. lunch and she's like, Hi, engulfs me in this huge hug. I was like, right. I wasn't like jargoning. I just wasn't being from the Northeast for a little bit more like, okay, cool. Too cool for school. But I was like, okay, I know I'm here for this. This is great. Like then we talked so much. We were running late and I had to take her to a restaurant at a, what is it? A strip mall. (laughs) I know. And I was like, this is all we were eating sushi in a strip mall. But this, I was like, Mexican's good. I was like, just get through the interview next so quickly. You like to impress people down here. No, it was good. It was good chips and salsa. I had some fish tacos. And then I saw you crying at dinner the next night because you were laughing so hard after Dr. Harden said something hilariously ridiculous i'm not sure exactly what maybe something about a lifetime movie anyway oh oh yeah she was talking about on the square that's what it was i couldn't remember where we were laughing on so hard we were talking about hallmark movies and how this was like small town hallmark movie and then you're like and now this is where we go dance on the square right and then it starts snowing because it's always going to snow like even though it probably doesn't snow at least as much in tennessee as it does here it's ironically Uh, snowing today oh nice okay yeah i was actually going to text you the other day because i had we were getting like, I don't know, eight inches or something. I was like, I'm looking forward to not having to do this quite as often. <laughs> but uh, anyway, but and I guess the, the lesson other- that I learned in all of this, the, the lesson I learned in all of this, and this, I learned this with my last partner. I didn't think it was possible that someone would want to come to the practice that I was in. I thought there was too many barriers. And the lesson that I learned was that those barriers are what hold us back, not reality. So when we actually start to believe that it might be possible then we open ourselves up to different avenues to where we actually do find the right person. I didn't recruit either of my partners through anything that was normal. (laughs) (laughs) Normal's boring. (laughs) What I did was I found my connections and I found people who fit the practice and I have the luxury of doing that. So I mean, I, I think my lesson to anyone who's listening is if you are finding yourself in a difficult position of trying to find a job and and everything feels like the wrong fit, change how you're looking at your job and get some feedback, get some coaching, talk to a friend or a therapist or someone who can reflect back your thoughts to you because you're probably operating under some misguided notion of what you think you want. Like inner wise, you know what you want, but it doesn't translate because it's only built on what you're thinking is possible. So when you really suspend the thought that what you think is not possible may actually be possible, All of a sudden, it's just like you said, like when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And the same is true for when you are ready, the job appears. And I truly believe that when you start being your authentic self, you will find the job that is authentic to you because you've stopped looking and you started being who you were. Right. Yeah. And the teacher does not have to be obviously a person. It can be an opportunity. It honestly can even be a, a, a difficult circumstance that uh, there's actually a, a, another part to the quote that I always, that I tend to 
I shouldn't say ignore, but I usually don't say, but it's actually that when the student's ready, the teacher appears. And when the student is truly ready, the teacher disappears. Yes. But these things, opportunities, sometimes adversities get put in your path when you're ready for them. Mm -hmm. And then it's just really nice how it all worked out. I wouldn't have had it any other way. (laughs) Yeah. So I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing a lot more of Dr. Courtney Barrows McEwen. So Anyway, I'm so glad you came on and shared your story and really just the whole arc of your hero's journey, because I think a lot of people are going to see your paths and the things that that you shared and see themselves in your story and the program directors that are going to then see how do I help the resident who may be in trouble. And just like your psychiatrist and your husband, you actually may be saving lives too. So there's no small aspect of this story. So I really appreciate you coming on and being so vulnerable and sharing what I'm sure has been painful for you and along your path. And just think of your exponential positive effect on the world by simply sharing your story. So it's nothing short of remarkable. I'm so glad you came on. Me too. No, and, that, and that was truly my main motivation for doing it was to reach out to those people who may not feel like I did a few years ago that they may have any other options and feel free to share my Instagram handle or Facebook or whatever. So people have a way to reach out. I'd be happy to, even if they just need like a compassionate ear or some advice. I'm not associated with any of these entities as far as working for them, but I can just be a friendly ear to bounce ideas off too. So happy. we'll make sure to leave your social media contacts on there so they can contact you. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Of course. For more information on the BOSS Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.